This week on Telltales, our season finale and stories from everyone. You get a story and you get a story. The Telltales is a consortium of rival gang leaders from the 1970s who get together every third picosecond to conjure cheap tricks. And also, we write fiction stories. David is absolutely not Mark Laidlaw. Nope, not him. Not even a little bit. Josh is dead. We've been pulling a Weekend at Bernie's act all season. You're welcome. Chris is right behind... Oh no, watch out! And then the murders began. Why is Chris always behind us? What is he even doing back there? Today we're going to give you three pieces of flash fiction. One written by each member of the Telltales. These are Laidlaw stories. If you're not familiar with a Laidlaw story, it all started when author Mark Laidlaw posited on Twitter that the first line of almost any story can be improved by making sure that the second line is, and then the murders began. Because we're easily suggestible, we decided to use that as a writing prompt for each other. We made up first lines for each other, added that homicidal second line, and then threw down in a flash fiction battle royale. The first story is called Untended, and it's by David Prysock. The second story is called Skidmire, it's by Josh Carroll, and the last is called Huntress, and it's by me. As an extra special treat, this week's stories are all narrated by the incomparable Jim Wilsey. I'm sure you all remember him from episode 7, Famine Feast. We're thrilled to have him back for our last episode of the season. So without further ado, let the murders begin. The old house, with its wildly overgrown garden, was silent, and then the murders began. It's hard to complain, since visitors bring in so much money, something our sleepy little town hasn't had much of since the mill closed down a decade ago. Still, there's a few of us who would rather things be like they were before. Fred, the old gardener who used to live out there, was known to be a little unstable, a character trait reflected in the poor condition of his home. But boy, could he grow some fine plants. What Fred lacked in personality, he made up for in sheer horticultural brilliance. He was able to take exotic plants and make them thrive in a part of the world where they didn't belong. Fred experimented with a wide array of crossbred flower varieties, but he was most well known for a breed of his own creation, which only bloomed in the moonlight. The large plant, with its red petals and long, thick vines, was the centerpiece of his garden. The old kook mostly kept to himself, but everyone in town was bothered by two things about Fred and his garden. The first was the smell. Whatever he was using to fertilize that place had a foul stench which permeated the whole town. It made everyone miserable, but they tolerated it anyway and tried to mind their own business. The second unsettling thing about the garden was its beauty. It was just too good. The few people who actually visited described the garden as a paradise. There was even an armchair botanist from the next town over, some fussy old lady named Mabel, who wrote a letter to the editor about Fred's garden, which ended up all over the internet. 
We were shocked that something so widely appreciated was in our little town, but we were even more surprised that it was Fred was responsible. We all knew he had plenty of experience, but Fred didn't seem to possess the intelligence and education necessary to create such a remarkable garden. Plus, he was kind of creepy. His inability to maintain his home, along with that strange smell, gave everyone a bad feeling about him. The only person in town who had any kind of relationship with Fred was the mortician, and that's not exactly the kind of company that helps one's reputation. For all those reasons, and because it just sounded right, the townspeople got it in their heads that Fred had sold his soul to the devil in exchange for his gardening prowess. It just seemed to make sense if you knew Fred. When the mailman saw Fred's mail pile up for a week, he told the mortician who went to visit and found that Fred had passed away. He didn't have a will, so Fred's poor lawyer spent months looking all over for next to kin. He gave instructions to leave the house untouched, and the town was more than happy to oblige that request. Anyone who had been up there would tell you that the place just didn't feel right, and for some it was more than just a feeling. The last people to set foot on that property were the mortician and his staff who carted the owner's body away. They spoke of many unsettling things, including strange voices, disturbing aromas, and plants seeming to move of their own volition. And so the house sat at the edge of town, unoccupied and untended. The holes in the roof grew larger, the shutters fell off, and the paint continued to peel and crack. No one cared the slightest about the condition of the house because to do anything about it would mean going back into that garden. The house sat untouched for a few months before an inheritor finally showed up, which turned out to be a distant nephew. This young man didn't know much about Fred, but he knew about Fred's work and how famous his garden had become. While the nephew looked for a permanent caretaker for the garden, he decided he'd try to earn some cash by advertising the place to the public as a tourist destination. He was keen on the fact that there was interest in the garden, especially that one flower which bloomed in the moonlight. The nephew fixed up the house as a bed and breakfast to accommodate overnight guests, then spread the word. Sure enough, he soon had reservations from botanists, amateur gardeners, and world-renowned painters and photographers who wanted to use his plants as subjects for their art. When the first group of outsiders traipsed into town, we tried to warn them. They were dead set on seeing the legendary garden despite our fervent warnings. They insisted that such a unique collection of plants must be preserved and appreciated. We insisted that gardens be damned, living is better. They ignored us and went right up to that old house, but they never came out. That would have been bad enough, but then their colleagues started showing up looking for them. They didn't believe our suspicions about the garden either, so they decided to investigate for themselves. Whenever we think the next group will be the end of it, another batch of tourists shows up, eating in our many fine restaurants and buying from our delightful gift shops. We can't be sure what's going on in that house, but out-of-town visitors sure are good for business, even if we don't get many repeat customers. The mill closing down a while back left us high and dry, so it's nice to have activity and steady income again. Rumor is they're going to be putting in a Walmart next month. If we're lucky, we might even get a Starbucks. You would not believe what those city folks would pay for a cup of coffee. 
Just about everyone in town agrees that the income from tourism more than makes up for the screams coming from Fred's old house every night. The text message simply said, very clever. And then the murders began, the prosecutor interrupted in his thick Bronx accent. My client, Mr. Skidmire, nodded. He was cool and matter-of-fact. Not a drop of sweat or an unsteady movement gave the smallest hint of guilt or nerves. That text message was all the approval I needed. All right, said the prosecutor. You want to tell the court who gave this approval? No, I cannot. I do not know who sent the message. I only know that it was from a client. There are two things I deliver to my clients without fail. Absolute confidentiality is one. Clean, convenient murder is the other. I winced. The jury gasped. A roar of murmurs arose. The judge banged his gavel and called the courtroom to order. Murder, though, is really the wrong word, Skidmire continued in a tone of cordial sophistication. It is both inaccurate and insufficient, though some use it to describe what I do. It is a passionate, weighty word, if not altogether precise, and some people value its ability to elicit emotion over its ability to convey the truth. The attorney opened his mouth, but Skidmire cut him off. Why is murder the wrong word? Two reasons. First, it implies crime, and crime must violate law. For one to be subject to a law, one must be under the jurisdiction of that law and the legal system that enforces it. It is no crime to act contrary to a law to which one is not subject. For example, I once visited a small town where it is illegal for a man to whistle at a woman on the street, but a man who stands outside the town's borders cannot be convicted for whistling at a woman within. He is beyond the law's reach and therefore innocent. Similarly, I do my work from the comfort of my personal spacecraft, beyond the jurisdiction of any earthly government. So you want us to let you off on some kind of technicality? The prosecutor asked. Skidmire waved a dismissive hand and continued as if he had not heard the lawyer. Second and more important, he said, I did not kill anybody. The audience began to whisper again. Skidmire pressed on. Every person who died to fulfill my contract did so by his or her own hand. I simply convinced each one to leave this world early. And how'd you do that exactly? It didn't take much, just the truth. What's that supposed to mean? Their lives were pointless and troubled. I simply showed them the futility of living. To my knowledge, there is no law against existentialism. If there were, many works of philosophers and singers and poets should be destroyed. King Solomon himself would be among the guilty. Do you suggest we ban the Bible? Life is, as the teacher says, meaningless. I simply shone the light of God's own truth into a dark corner of the soul. Nobody ever killed themselves over philosophy. Haven't they? Skidmire asked. The prosecutor grunted. Come on, he began. You didn't exactly call these people up on the telephone. And true, I did not communicate in a traditional manner. My words were interpreted by the deceased as their own hidden thoughts. And I confess that was my intention. But if I make my living by the power of suggestion, then I find myself in the company of every politician, advertiser, and hypnotist who has ever enjoyed success in his field. You suggested they kill themselves? Yes. How? Skidmire paused, then asked, 
When you think, do you hear your own voice? Sure. How do you know it's you? Well, I... You don't. There are several ways your inner voice can be used against you, and you would never know. You would trust that voice implicitly. A skilled manipulator like myself could convince you to do anything. My technology allows me to plant thoughts from any distance. As to the specifics, I don't care to disclose them. So you admit that you're responsible for the deaths of these innocent people, announced the prosecutor triumphantly. Skidmire nodded. Gladly, but I am no murderer. Now, if you don't mind, I will be on my way. I am a busy man. He stood and straightened his tie. Sit down, boy, growled the judge. I haven't dismissed you. Skidmire sighed and smiled sympathetically at the judge. Good day, your honor, he said. Then he raised his eyes to the ceiling and lifted his hands as if in prayer. At once the courtroom was alive with chaos, hands clapped over mouths. The judge pounded his gavel and demanded order that would not come. The prosecutor and I shouted. The bailiff approached with one hand on his sidearm and commanded Mr. Skidmire to resume his seat. Skidmire ignored us all. Heavenly refuge, he chanted over the din. Deliver me from this place. Show my enemies the error of their ways. Then he tapped his heels together three times and vanished. A collective gasp arose. For a moment, whispers floated around the courtroom as we all wondered at Skidmire's disappearance. But soon the wonder was replaced with a tangible melancholy. We sank into our seats. A few people wandered out. All was silent. At last, the judge dropped his gavel onto the bench and stood. This court is in recess until tomorrow at nine o'clock, he whispered and disappeared into his chambers. My mind was conquered by despair. Everything sad in the world seemed true, all happiness and illusion. Had I not been his defense attorney? Then came the gunshot. We all knew it was the judge, but nobody went to him. Nobody cared. I took up my hat and briefcase and I left the courthouse. Outside, the sun shone and the birds sang. I gazed into the clear blue expanse and imagined Mr. Skidmire looking down from on high, dispensing judgment in his truth wherever he saw fit. A cruel God in a lonely sky. He opened the door to find her standing there, crying. And then the murders began. Well, that figures, Pete thought as his phone dinged. He'd been really looking forward to this date, so it figured that it would get interrupted by work. He looked at Shauna's tear-streaked face and then down at his text message. Multiple homicide in progress. Move to assist, it said, and listed an address. I know better than to schedule a date when I'm on call, he thought. Better move, or Jerry will be pissed. It was hard to think about work with Shauna in front of him, crying but beautiful in tight jeans and a nice blouse. He sighed, stepped outside, and closed the door behind him. Look, Shauna, I'm really sorry about this, but I have to go. He looked at her apologetically. Work, you know. Shauna wiped her face with her hand. I knew you'd cancel, she said, her voice unsteady. I hoped you wouldn't, but... She took a deep, shuddering breath. It's your job. It's... It's who you are. 
Pete stood there for a moment, torn between his job and this beautiful woman. He sighed and started towards his parked car on the curb. Shauna reached out and grabbed his arm. He turned to find her looking at him with tear-filled eyes. Peter, I'm so sorry. She finished with a sob, turned, and quickly walked away. When Pete arrived at the scene, he sat for a moment, gathering his thoughts. He hadn't expected this night to end up in a tangle of bodies. Not dead bodies, at least. Stop it, Pete. It's game time. He reached into the seat back pocket of the passenger seat, pulled out a ski mask and a pair of leather gloves, and slipped them on. He popped the trunk, got out of the car, and walked around to the back. He tried to stay focused, but as he was filling his jacket pockets with clips, he couldn't stop thinking about Shauna. He'd never met anyone like her before. She was beautiful, tall, and fierce. She had asked him out the first time. He liked that. The girl had a steel backbone. Goes with that brick house of a body, he thought with a smile. Lady stacked, and that's a fact. He shook his head, popped a clip into a large assault rifle, and shut the trunk. I'll make it up to her with flowers and sushi, he decided as he moved down the street at a trot. Before he'd gone a block, he spotted three bodies. Dang, Jerry's been busy. Must have been close when the call came. From the corner of his eye, he caught movement in an alley. With a smooth, instinctual movement, he spun, took a knee, aimed, and squeezed the trigger. The target hit the concrete with a grunt. Clean shot, center mass, Pete thought with the satisfied smile of a professional doing what he does best. As he stood, however, he felt the pressure of a gun barrel jammed into the base of his skull. Put down the rifle, slowly. Shit, a cop, he thought. This is going to get messy. He set the rifle down on the concrete and raised his hands above his head. The gun barrel moved off of his head and the voice said, Now stand up and turn around. Pete did as he was told. As he was turning, he saw the cop and stopped in shock. Take off the mask, Pete, Shauna said. She was still dressed in jeans and that blouse, but she had a badge clipped to her belt now. Shauna? What the f- Take the mask off now, Pete! Her voice shook, but her gun never wavered. Yeah, yeah, okay. Pete reached up and pulled off his mask. Damn it, Shauna. Just damn it. He threw the mask away and her eyes flickered to follow the violent motion. The moment's distraction was all the time that he needed. Pete leapt across the gap between them, grabbed the gun barrel, and yanked it upwards. His other hand encircled her neck, choking off her startled scream. Shauna reflexively fired into the air, and the barrel burned Pete's hand where he gripped the gun. An average man would have let go in pain, but Pete wasn't, and didn't. Damn it, Shauna, why'd you have to be a cop? He growled into her ear. Not cop, she gasped. What do you mean, not cop? He asked, loosening his grip so that she could speak. Not cop, she hissed. Hunter. Then he felt the blade slide between his ribs and into his heart. Surprised, he looked down to find a medieval ivory-handled iron dagger sticking out of his chest. The wound was smoking. Confused, he looked up at Shauna as she pulled free of his grip. His body seemed to deflate and his limbs began to lengthen as he reverted to his natural, monstrous shape. V... Valkyrie? He mumbled, almost to himself. You're Valkyrie? Amazon, actually, she replied, rubbing her neck. Damn it, Pete, I liked you. Why'd you have to be a monster? With a howl of hunger, Pete's partner, Jerry, exploded out of the alleyway, a terrifying spindly whirl of claws and teeth. His large, wild eyes glowed with bloodlust from an emaciated face as he hurtled towards Shauna. No! Pete shouted. With unnatural speed, he ripped the dagger from his chest and flung it at Jerry. 
The dagger slammed into Jerry's right eye and he came to a crashing halt on the concrete. Shauna stared at the dagger burning its way through the beast's skull, then back at Pete. There was a huge smoldering hole in his chest where the dagger had been. He smiled at her as the light faded from his eyes. She's the one, he half sang, built like an Amazon. He coughed up ashes. Knew there was something about you. He laid his head down on the concrete. Ain't holding nothing back, he whispered, and then he didn't say anything more. These were so much fun to write. So these are flash fiction. Um, If you're not familiar with flash fiction, basically it's a whole story that's under a thousand words. That sounds easy because it's not a whole lot of words, but guys, let me tell you, that was so hard. I think anybody who's listened to our podcast long enough to hear our banter and kind of get a feel for it knows that we have a hard time keeping anything under a thousand words. Well, I didn't have a hard time cutting Chris's story down to a thousand words. No, you sure didn't. I had a (laughs) great time just chopping away at that thing to get it down. Yeah, so when I got to, to the point where I was ready to edit mine, I was done with mine. I realized that it was like 1,600 words. And so I turned to these chuckleheads and was like, can you guys help me? And they licked their lips. <laughs> oh, man. Bared mm. their teeth, sharpened their knives, and bled red all over that stinking story. It was, it was really cathartic, really, um, giving Chris a, a little taste of his own medicine. Yeah, yeah. All that, all that criticism he threw our way. Editing stories, I just chopped and chopped. You don't need that word there. You don't need that word there. I just cut all the words. I was like, see that word? Don't need it. Cut it out. See that whole sentence? See that whole character? Just just cut it out. Just take it away. So petty. So petty. It was for your own good. And don't forget, when it was all said and done, you said thank you. It was kind of touching. Thank you, sir. Can I have another? Speaking of thank you. Yeah, guys, thank you for listening to all of these ridiculous stories that we gave you guys. For real. This was so much fun. This whole season was just so much fun. We had a blast making it, and we got great feedback from y'all. Some of you aren't even related to us, which is pretty crazy. (laughs) We joked at the beginning of the season that there were only like two listeners, but that's not true. And you guys really made this a joy to produce throughout the whole season. So, guys, thank you so much. Absolutely. As a thank you to all of you for making it through this whole season with us, we wanted to give you guys a free ebook. Every story that that we did in this podcast is going to be in there. We're also going to do three extra stories in there, and they're actually going to be longer than most of the stories in the season. So we've got a, we've got a story about a walk through the woods with talking animals. We've got uh, some crazy stuff that goes down on a schoolyard, and we've got a really wild time traveling tale. All of those are going to be available for free in the ebook, and you can get that right now by going to telltaleswriting.com slash oddbook. Why oddbook? Well, because it's oddity season one. Why else? Because we're pretty odd and the stories are pretty odd. And honestly, if you made it through a whole season of these stories, you're pretty odd too. So go get it at telltaleswriting.com slash oddbook. Download it. Tell your mom to download it. Get your brother to download it. Everybody needs to download these stories and just enjoy it. We thank you guys so much for spending this entire season with us. Yeah, and definitely don't take us out of your podcast feed. We will be back. Um, We can't promise exactly when, um, but we are already in progress for season two. Um, May or may not be oddities, but we will be coming back at you in uh, no time at all with some new episodes. So, uh, So keep us in your feed. 
in the meantime, please go to our Facebook page and we will keep you updated there with what's going on. We also have a Facebook group called the Telltales Community where we'll be posting other silly random stuff related to our stories and talking about what's going on with us. Please also go over to iTunes and give us reviews and ratings. Those help us to be seen by other people so that people who have not heard the Telltales yet will be able to discover us on their podcast list. Also, it's very important that you sign up for our mailing list so we can keep in touch with you, give you all sorts of new updates about when season two might be coming, what else is going on with us. That's definitely the way you need to get that free ebook. So go sign up for the mailing list right now. Like, I mean, you're listening to something, you might be in the car, but otherwise, as soon as possible, go sign up on that mailing list. This has been a production of The Telltales. Copyright for today's stories belongs to Chris Dumoulin, Josh Carroll, and David Prysock. So don't steal them or the murders really will begin. Theme music is by the Flat Creek Kings. Catering this week was provided by the all-new Soylent Blue Energy Bars. Guaranteed organic, sustainable, and 97% people-free. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. You can find us at telltaleswriting.com, on Facebook by searching Telltales Writing, on Twitter at at telltaleswrite, or on Instagram at telltaleswriting. If you did not enjoy this podcast, well, you won't have to hear from us anymore for at least a few more months. say could possibly be right before or right after a murder. So watch out.